0: Welcome to Spiritually Fierce, the podcast. I am your host, doctor Ricky Rikki-Jane Adams, Principal and Founder of the Institute for Intuitive Intelligence and creator of the Spiritually Fierce movement. Spiritually Fierce is not just a phrase, it is a movement of awakening consciousness of which we are all a part, if we wanna be. In each episode, we'll explore what it means to be Spiritually Fierce, how to become it, and why it is the revolution in consciousness that will save the world. Join me and my fierce guests for deep conversations on spirituality beyond the trinkets and superstitions of the new age that will support you to increase your power to serve. Welcome everybody to season two of Spiritually Fierce, the podcast. And season two is all about difficult spiritual conversations. And Amelia is someone I have known. We've had a shared podcast interview several years ago, but I've followed her journey through social media and and feel like there's this knowing, even though it may be completely in my imagination. But I have no doubt this woman is more than capable of having deep spiritual conversations and difficult spiritual conversations. And in fact, I'll share with you why I was prompted to invite Amelia to join me in season two in a moment. But first, let me tell you a little bit about this extraordinary woman. Amelia is a women's coach, astrologer, writer, TEDx speaker, breathwork facilitator, and yoga E-R-Y-T 500 teacher, which means you've done 500 hours, yes? Whose own experience of trauma and womb healing set her on the path to helping women find healing, liberation and expansion in body, life and business. Welcome, welcome, welcome beautiful woman.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Almost two years exactly, I think, after our first um, conversation and what a full two years those have been for Um, all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah, that shocks me in some ways. It feels like it could have been 20 years as well as, you know, just yesterday. So yeah, goodness me. And it was such a, yeah, pivotal moment for me. That was such a deep conversation and, you know, feeling really met, which is not something that always happens, um, especially in a short format like that. You don't have a lot of time, but it felt like a very deep connection. So Mm -hmm. I know quite a lot of amazing, incredible things about you and a lot of things that could fit into the category of difficult spiritual conversations from your Mm -hmm. own life. But what Mm -hmm. triggered me to invite you to join in today was a post that you shared uh, back on March 19 on Instagram, and I'm having a look at it over here. Where you talked about, and here's the opening line, weed makes me a better mum. It's true and it really is that simple. When I'm a little bit stoned, I show up for my kids in a different way. I'm down on their level, curious, playful, exploratory, engaged and less reactive. I'm more empathetic, connected and creative. With micros, I find my heart and emotions right at the surface of my being. And it goes on and you you know, beautifully share on this idea of, Uh, the question is sobriety the key to good parenting and I was Mm. like boom I need to have this conversation with you because as the mystic that you are as a woman who follows her inner life that Saraswati energy as much as the outer life of mothering and the hands-on you know your youngest is what like less than two years old
1: yeah he's just turned a year
0: yeah you know you're you're Mm. in the trenches of motherhood right now um Mm. so I want to ask Really, just tell us what brought you to this point where you know that being a little bit stoned is how to be the best mother you can be and everything else that you want to share with us.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my relationship with substances started pretty young. I would say in adolescence, Um, my parents were not, um, not averse to substance use. They drank recreationally. They used cannabis not necessarily in front of my sister and I but it also wasn't a great secret it's like if they had friends around they would go sit around the fire in the backyard and you know I'd smell that sweet sm- sweet smoke smell and know that it was yeah. different than tobacco or cigarette um, and they were relatively open about that when you know we came of the age that it was felt important to have those conversations 10 11 12 years old um, So it was never something that was really shamed or shunned, but at the same time I grew up with, you know, my mom was a psychologist, my dad was an attorney and both of them for different reasons said, you know, here's the things that you should be aware of with any kind of substance use, there are risks. Um, And there are of course perceived rewards in both socializing and your own dopamine experience and this and that, but um, choose and use wisely was kind of what I was taught, which I did not do. i did not do Um, so i would say from a pretty young age 13 14 years old i definitely used alcohol as a social lubricant but in a really unhealthy way i mean you know taking water bottles full of hard alcohol to a party and drinking it without any uh awareness of what an appropriate amount was and things like that um a lot of times the experiences with alcohol led to unsavory or downright like dangerous situations um you know, sexual uh, encounters that were unwanted or where I was unconscious, um, yeah. and that relationship with alcohol continued until my mid twenties, I would say, with varying levels of, um, you know, distress and impairment being caused by that relationship with alcohol. Simultaneously. Uh, my dad cheated on my mom and left when I was 14 years old. My mom went into a hu- hugely significant depression. My sister took the path of going like straight and narrow, focused on school. And I chose sex, drugs, and bone thugs. You know, so I was like, let me just let me just um, get in as much trouble. I, I really channeled my anger and my grief about the, you know, destruction of my nuclear family into self-harm. Um, through explorations of sexuality and substance use that were that were really on the heavy end of risk you know Um, and and that led to a lot of shame and guilt because one of the things that you know the greater society as a whole says is not acceptable particularly for young women uh, are these two things sexuality and spirituality and i say spirituality particularly in the sense of like sacred feminine spirituality exploring uh consciousness right through altered states particularly it's like you're a druggie you're um you know you're a stoner you're you're a loser and in the in the states we have a a drug prevention program called dare and the slogan was keeping kids off drugs and i don't know if that was international but it was a very effective kind of marketing strategy um, by the government that really painted with a broad brush anyone who used any kind of uh, scheduled or controlled substance as a degenerate, just like a worthless human being, right? So all of this was my conditioning that I was exploring these behaviors in sexuality and substance use, and I was bad for it, right? That was my internalized belief system. And that Kind of carried on into my early twenties. Uh, I went, you know, down, did six years in a pretty seriously abusive relationship. And when I left that relationship, I wanted to get my power back by stepping into a sugar baby, sugar daddy dynamic, which I did for a couple of years and dated these older, wealthy men. And along with that, you know, flying on private planes and buying expensive clothes and doing a lot of cocaine and um, ecstasy and and again this combination of sex and substance use. And again a lot of trauma. And um, I say trauma, meaning any experience that felt unsafe in my body and was then not processed or integrated in a supportive way. And so left the cellular kind of memory imprint in my being of threat. So I would say, um, you know, I'm giving all of that. So you have the background of my relationship with substances, that it was not what we would call like a healthy relationship. Yeah. And That carried on until my mid-20s when I had a a spiritual awakening. So during those sugar baby, sugar daddy years, one of the interesting things that happened was one of these sugar daddies was also a devout Christian, um, like a born-again Christian, pretty fundamentalist, uh, Pentecostal, four-square church, for people who know those terms, a very charismatic, magical thinking kind of uh, Christianity, which after being raised agnostic, um, and then having all of this trauma and shame spiraling and guilt around my sexuality and substance use. When, when I met this man and I was a hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt, heavily using drugs, you know, had just gotten out of a six year abusive relationship. I was a mess. And he said, Hey, I have something that can save you. Jesus can save you. And that was really attractive to me at the time. I really felt that I needed to be saved. I really felt that you know, if I could have my slate wiped clean from what a horrible, terrible person I was for um, for mainly these two things of sexuality and consciousness exploration, right, I'm, then I would be okay. And so I um, stepped into a very charismatic uh, Christian faith, and that was very alive for me from about 22 to 20, um, really till maybe 33, actually, but um, quite strongly in my early to mid-20s. And so around 25, when I realized that the sugar daddy thing wasn't working for me anymore, uh, I sent up this prayer one day on the beach here on um, unceded Chumash territory in central uh, coastal region of, of California. And the prayer was, you know what, God, I am just, I just suck at life. I am so bad at, at making decisions. And I just choose these men who are terrible for me. And you know, I keep abusing my body with substances and I just, I just give up. I want to be single for like five years. I don't want to date. I don't, I just want to give my life to you. I want to surf. I want to paint. I want to write. I want to do yoga. Just like make me the woman that you want me to be. Right. And let me tell you, this is a very abbreviated version, but that prayer was powerful and it redirected the course of my life in a way where Uh, I didn't actually stop using substances overnight. I didn't stop drinking. I didn't stop having sex, Um, but it was a priority shift where I said, listen, I know that there's a, I know that there's a person in here, a woman in here who is vibrant and creative and I want to meet her, right? That was the core of that prayer. And what happened was my life started to rearrange itself in accordance with that prayer And as it did, my relationship with substances and my own sexuality also changed where both of those things started to become, um, healthier in that, like, I was no longer drinking to, you know, blackout. And I wasn't, I just dumped all the Coke in the toilet. It was like, I'm done with cocaine. Right. That just was kind of an easy let go. Um, I met a man who I've now been married to for, I don't know, a decade, and he was incredible embodiment of, of, um, loving masculine energy and really helped me reframe, um, what men can be. Right. So all of this happened. And, uh, I say this because my journey did not really include a period of like sobriety in the sense of cutting out all substances and, um, you know, getting on the wagon, but, what did happen is as my relationship with substances and spirituality and sexuality both started to shift into something that was more neutral, um, I found that my lifelong relationship with cannabis specifically was was now not really something that uh, felt harmful at all, but really just felt like this helpful ally for creativity and really for pleasure, actually. Um, And so the relationship with cannabis has been with me. I'm 36 years old for 22 years, off and on, mostly on, but not in what most people think of. Like, it's not like the movie Half-Baked. I'm not like stoned all day, every day. You know, I partake in a mindful way to intentionally shift my mind and my body into a better place. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when this question that you're asking or that we're talking about of how does cannabis or psilocybin, you know, microdosing mushrooms relate to my parenting over the past few years, as I've really deepened my relationship with earth-based spirituality and this part of the story that didn't get told, but the shift from Christianity to, uh, sacred feminine and really seasonal cyclical um, spirituality has been happening gradually over the last six years of my life. And with that has come a new deep appreciation for these medicines, these teachers, I really consider them teachers, allies, friends, partners that come from the earth who have a different kind of consciousness and who in relationship with them invite us to maybe link our consciousness or shift to be more in their way of understanding. Um, And it's a huge benefit in my life today. Like cannabis makes me exactly what I said in that post um, more present. It takes away the um, kind of anxiety and sense of needing to be doing something else. Right. It, it, it shifts my, it shifts my lens to one of appreciation and curiosity. And I think that that lens of appreciation and curiosity, regardless of whether you get there with a substance or you get there with you know affirmations or you get there with whatever, practice, help, meditation, mantra, whatever helps you get there. Um, that lens of appreciation and curiosity is a key that opens the door to connection, right? With other human beings, with yourself. Um, And so my relationship with, with both cannabis and psilocybin in the last few years has become very intentional and one in which I'm asking these wisdom teachers to help support me in my life so that I can be more of the woman that I want to be kind of like that same prayer on the beach, right? Mm -hmm. Please help me to be more of this vibrant, um, creative, curious, appreciative, um, woman that I know I can be and they're tools. I think, I think they're tools. And I think it comes down to like, what is your relationship with those tools? Are you using them? Are they using you? Yeah. Yeah, which determines is it is it working for you yeah
0: yeah (gasps) love that but that is often not even a question that people get to ask because the demonization of anything that is not legal according to you know both Australian and American Mm -hmm. law means that there is an immediate assumption that it's wrong right so mm-hmm. there, there isn't even a space of am i being intentional in my use it's that shadow side of this is an illegal substance or this is a substance that is a party drug or gets me high or i you know use it to the point of blackout or you know completely checking out of my life there's no or very little from my perspective education or invitation to sit with it in a different context now we know in mm-hmm. the spiritual world, spiritual or you know fringe communities, there is probably more of that. But even so, I still think there's a lot of people who are either suspicious or, or misuse, don't intentionally use uh, plant medicine or allies that could be used intentionally. So I think the fact that you had all of this prior experience, even though the context of so much of it was perhaps as party girl, means Mm -hmm. that you've got, a um, there's a permissiveness. Like I'm open to having a curious relationship now because I'm not immediately assuming that it's bad or illegal or just there to get me messed up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wonder how you feel that we can begin to bring that conversation in. I mean, is it possible whilst legislation still says you will potentially go to jail if you participate? Or do you think it's happening at a ground level, has always been happening at a grassroots level and is just just gonna take time?
1: That's a great question. And my mind went to historically things that have been illegal throughout time and how, like, what is the interplay of, um, societal change from a bottom-up kind of approach versus a top-down. And just an example that came to mind was: until the 1960s in the United States, a woman could not have her own bank account legally without a male uh, co-signer, a father, an uncle, a brother. Um, it was illegal for a woman to have her own money, right? right. And and so when we think about that, even 60 years later, we think, well, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's nonsensical and, um, that's wrong and that's not fair. Right. And I kind of think the same thing when it comes to, um, certain substances that are scheduled or controlled, when we look at the history of, first of all, why, why are they scheduled or controlled? Um, and with cannabis specifically, and actually psilocybin as well, Different timeline, um, but both of them ended up becoming governmentally regulated, in part because of the the threat of the counterculture consciousness shift, right? With, with cannabis, a lot of it actually had to do with the rise of the pharmaceutical industry and the many different uses of cannabis and hemp uh, for medicinal purposes and what an incredible, essentially wonder drug it is. uh, As we now know, because of medical, uh, medical cannabis or medical marijuana initiatives um, and how much research is available, that it is really this incredibly helpful tool to, that works with our natural endocannabinoid system, right? We have cannabinoid receptors throughout our entire body um, that really help our body. Endocannabinoids, which are are in, in natural chemicals that work with the same receptors as cannabis, um, basically are there to bring the body back into homeostasis. They're there to bring the body back into balance specifically to help support a natural recovery phase that happens after our nervous system has been activated due to threat or perceived threat. So there's this incredible drug that can help us with, you know, cognition, emotional regulation, sleep, memory, uh, our reward circuitry. And THC does that and mimics these natural endocannabinoids. And so the regulation of cannabis, you know, I think a lot of it is like education. People don't know that 200 years ago, this wasn't illegal and that it only became illegal about hundred years ago. And that it was actually in response to, you know, the potential for that market, um, a free market for people to grow, literally what we call weed in your yard, like go have your own medicine that you get straight from the earth. Um, And who does that threaten, right? That threatens the the people who are making money from pharmaceuticals. So similar thing with psilocybin, but a later timeline, Um, 1950s psilocybin was at the forefront of psychedelic research uh, in the United States and probably in other countries as well. My knowledge is mostly about the US. and when the 60s happened in LSD, LSD was also being researched heavily at the time. And when there started to be these incredible therapeutic applications from psychedelics for things like mm-hmm. alcohol dependency and uh, depression and, you know, all of these difficult to treat um, problems, there was this boom of interest in in psychedelics. There was also widespread social use, of course, of LSD and psilocybin or magic mushrooms in the 1960s that were part of the counterculture, the, you know, um, anti-Vietnam, you know, approach. And it was something that was, you know, I think about Timothy Leary at that time in the speeches that he gave, and he was threatening, he was threatening the establishment. He was saying, we don't have to do it this way. Like, you know, and And I could give countless other examples throughout history of things that were illegal or made to be illegal because they threatened the white body, supremacist, patriarchal, religious establishment of the day, whatever that day was. And this has been the trend for 5,000 years, right? Since we kind of had the last vestige of um, cyclical, feminine, you know, earth-based spirituality as being the norm. So... So to answer your question, like how can we help, can we help people with this if people are coming from the approach of believing that it's wrong? Um, I think we need to lead with curiosity and compassion and understanding that like some people are going to have those deeply entrenched beliefs. And because of that, they're not going to uh, be willing to explore the potential benefits of this for themselves. And they're going to stigmatize and villainize and demonize and shame other people who are uh, choosing to use these medicines. But I think that right now, the proliferation of education, you know, around both cannabis and psychedelics, at least in the United States, psychedelics are exploding in the United States. Again, um, the research for them, it's, you know, federally backed and funded and like and that's the other thing is like once you learn a little bit you see the immediate hypocrisy right it's still a schedule one controlled substance like you can go to jail for possessing the substance but at the same time the federal government is providing millions of dollars to fund research for therapeutic applications of the same substance why because there's a potential for money right like yeah. they, they yeah. can make money yeah. um yeah it's yeah, huge. I mean, I could I could stay on this soapbox about this, but I think to answer your question, like it's a one, it can be a one to one connection of like in in this case, like a mom to mom of one mom saying, well, here's something that I'm doing that's helping me, right? And there's all kinds of weird shit that we do that that helps. Like I remember after having my babies, like learning about yoni steaming, and you know, other women were like, "You're doing what? to Your vagina?" <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm sitting on a I'm sitting on a steam pot to help tighten up the tissues, and they're like you know, that's freaking yeah. weird, but like, t- but tell me more. Right. And yeah. so, um, in this particular case, when I say like, I dealt with really gnarly postpartum depression and anxiety with my second child and microdosing psilocybin for me, it was a better option than going back on Paxil or Prozac, um, or Xanax or, you know, pharmaceuticals that I have been prescribed in the past th- I didn't like the person that I was when I was taking them. So, um, Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's going to be different in their, in their belief system around this, but I think that the more that we can educate evidence-based information about the science of how these, uh, plants and fungi work in the body, it, it, it starts to soften a little bit and become less weird to think about having a relationship with a plant that grows in the earth or the fungi that grows naturally in the earth than having this, And it's, and this is by the way, not shitting on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications. You, you know, take what you need to take to feel how you need to feel and to thrive in your life. But when we think about synthetics and then, you know, earth-based medicines, it's like this doesn't have to be valorizing one over the other and making one better. It's like, they're both just tools that you can use to help yourself feel better.
0: Absolutely. And I think, I think what happens, Amelia, for so many, well, let's keep talking about mothers in particular, but, but, you know, I think it happens for a lot of us is that we end up in this no man's land, a lot of spiritual people or a lot of people who are, you know, are anti antidepressants. So they don't want to go down the pharmaceutical path, but mm-hmm. they're not thriving, right? Their mental health mm-hmm. is not thriving, their well is not thriving. Um, and especially as you wake up on this spiritual path, you know, it's hard, it's destructive, it's, it's intense work but then Mm -hmm. they're also indoctrinated with the idea that you know plant medicine is is bad or wrong or that if you you know you you will be that loser stoner you know fringe dweller outcast if you if you Mm -hmm. participate in that and so what ends up happening is you go for what is uh publicly endorsed and what is that largely Mm -hmm. that's booze right and so Mm -hmm. you see a lot of people I see a lot of people self-medicating with alcohol and it's easy it's readily available it's I mean we literally in a, in Melbourne the city I was in during the campaign um, during the lockdowns we had the world's longest long longest and harshest lockdowns of anywhere in the world but what? was the the message from a governmental level all the way down it was meant to be fun but it it was very serious in the way that it was effective is that drink your way through this mm. right that was the mm. message and it was it, you know and and when the lockdowns ended the premier came out and said you know get on the beers right like now you get to drink more because now you can drink mm. in public and i think from my own experience which i shared a little bit with you before we began and i have shared publicly is that my journey with alcohol since i began drinking at 17 has been abusive and mm-hmm. sometimes more sometimes less right but i was seeking something i was seeking something that i couldn't find anywhere else and had never been told was okay so my mum's a teetotaler we were, you know drugs are bad all drugs are bad, blah, blah, blah. Like that was the messaging I got. So when I did start, you know, taking ecstasy, which I loved, um, in my twenties, it was a secret. I had to hide that behavior because Mm -hmm. even though I had some incredible spiritual experiences and then of course, you know, mushrooms and, and acid and things, it's, it was never safe to have those conversations in my family or in my community. Um, my sister ended up being a drug addict, so it was even more taboo. Um, Mm -hmm. so it, what I what I feel like is that I missed out on getting to understand that it was okay for me to be yearning for and desiring for that something that would help ease the anxiety of being me Mm. in the world being a live wire in the world Mm -hmm. which so often as spiritual beings we are and Mm -hmm. then moving into motherhood oh my god that was the biggest disappointment of my life like I thought I was going to be the quintessential earth mother and I I didn't get it, right? I just didn't get it from the (laughs) moment that it happened. Uh And I read your post with almost some grief in me because I thought, fuck me, if I had had any permission to explore this as a way of accepting myself Mm -hmm. and intentionally and consciously engaging with altered states of consciousness to come into um, uh, into my heart, into mm-hmm. presence with my beautiful children. And mm-hmm. I, you know, did end up medicated after my second son. And again, totally support, you know, antidepressants as required, if required. Mm-hmm. But that was because it was the only option, right? There was mm-hmm. nobody in my world that I knew who was saying, here's another possibility. Mm-hmm. So That's a long share. But I really just wanted to mm. just say how much what you shared meant to me because it just open something that was I guess a well of grief like I suffered mm-hmm. through a lot of the early years of mothering
1: mm-hmm.
0: I suffered through them
1: I and- think a lot of mothers do yeah it is not an easy it's not an easy I don't think it's been an easy path to walk at any point in history and I also think in the oh, in the modern world which is hyper connected digitally now but very disconnected from an analog perspective, right? We don't have, most people don't have the village. They don't have a community of people who are sharing the child rearing. And as women specifically, you know, one of the ways that we bond is through like the co-regulation of sitting and talking and singing and sharing stories and raising children together and cooking together and doing um, the labor that needs to be done together in community, at least again, that's the way that it was for many, many thousands of years, probably thirty thousand years, um, and then with you know only the last couple hundred, and the rise of industry and technology, and um, you know people, women specifically, no longer being women and children, no longer being at the center um, of society and communities we're not meant, we're not meant to do it alone. Like it is, it is, it is a thankless job that there are no breaks from. Like I'm in, I'm in an interesting season right now where because of different uh, sickness and travel and things, both my husband and I are going on about two months and and just like developmental stages of our children, two months without any significant rest, right? Without any support really from, outside family members because our family members are, you know, 8 10 12 hours away. Um and and thank god we have a really great solid relationship. Mm-hmm. But over the last year, you know, it's interesting to talk about alcohol because um it is totally sanctioned. You know what I mean? To che- cheerlead it. It is like the greater society says yes, drink. And we interestingly because I got pregnant 2 months into covid, We weren't really drinking um, through the first through 2020, which was not the norm, right? Everybody was boozing really hard. uh, And we just didn't have alcohol in the house. I was like super sick with morning sickness and so wasn't drinking as my husband wasn't drinking. But we, in not drinking, we're observing what was happening, you know, when we'd go to the market or we'd go to Costco or we'd talk to friends or we'd see people on social media. And we were watching how this was the socially acceptable coping tool or coping mechanism to navigate this unknown, uh, unfamiliar landscape of pandemic. and um and like, no shade on that to anyone. But it is interesting and fucked up, frankly, that, like, in your case the you know the government the governing bodies who are there to supposedly you know tell us how to operate in society and do well together are saying here's a great solution drink yeah. you know when i do um educate around this a little bit one of the interesting things that i found and this is globally universally true that the substance with the highest risk in terms of bodily injury community harm criminal activity et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, cetera. Bar none is alcohol.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, after that, there come, you know, some of the uh, like opiates and cocaine, and then um, this, you know, different stimulant substances. And then down over here at the lowest, lowest risk category, cannabis is pretty low. It's a little higher than psilocybin, but the lowest is psilocybin. And so it's interesting to me because, you know, in some ancient um, Vedic teachings, uh, it's taught that that Lord Shiva actually gave cannabis to humanity for pleasure, right? That is the teaching. So, like, really long term history of it. When we look at, if you read *Food of the Gods* by Terence McKenna, who is an ethnobotanist and scholar, um, did a lot of work around psychedelic advocacy. Um, you know in the book food of the gods he, he teaches about the history of all of the different psychoactive substances or not all but many of the different psychoactive substances that we engage with and he presents a really compelling argument that hominids you know human-like creatures have been engaging with psilocybin since the earliest possible history and that even the um activation of new neural pathways that happens from psilocybin use could very well by pregnant and breastfeeding women specifically could very well be part of what's called the stoned ape theory of how did we have this massive evolutionary advance where our brains not only grew in size, but grew in apparently function and activity over yeah. such a short period of time, relatively short period of time. Um, and it's like, you know to me it's just interesting that we would think these oldest wisdom teachers, when I think of these plants and fungi, I think of wisdom teachers and as mystics and I know that's who's listening right now too as, as spiritual you know people who are walking in a spiritual path, what if you had the opportunity to sit and you do, by the way, but to sit face to face with Shiva, right to sit face to face, with Ganesha, to sit face-to-face with Kuan Yin, to sit face-to-face with any, name any spiritual, with Jesus, with with, um, any spiritual teacher that you can name. Now imagine that there were some teachers who were even older than all the names we know. Imagine that there were teachers who have been here since the very beginning, and that you could go and sit with them. And in sitting with them, you could receive their wisdom and you could receive their activation of understanding more of who you are and why you're here and how to live in this human experience in a good way,
0: Yeah.
1: how would you go to meet those teachers?
0: Mm.
1: I would go with veneration and humility and respect and gratitude and love. Thank you for teaching me about my life. That's fungi. That's the mushroom teachers. They have been here forever. (laughs) And their memory is different from ours and their sentience is different from ours and their consciousness is different from ours. But man, you know, animals and humans for thousands of years have been eating these fungi and this cannabis on purpose because of the way it changes our consciousness. And that is evolutionary evolutionarily adaptive right there's a reason we keep doing it Mm -hmm. so yeah so we get this messaging from the dominant culture and society this is this is bad it's dangerous and it is dangerous it's dangerous that it's because it can be disruptive in our thinking (laughs) yeah, <laughs> that's, you know, it's, it's dangerous to the system accepting <laughs> things the way, you know, the way things are. I put that in air quotes. Yeah. Um, but I, I should give a caveat and say too that, you know, substance use versus substance abuse uh, is deeply personal. Yeah. Right. And so just because I can sit and and currently say this is a positive relationship for me to engage with these these plants uh, or fungi in this way does not mean that that's going to be the case for everybody. And it's absolutely possible to um, have an unhealthy relationship with cannabis that causes distress and impairment. It's absolutely possible for people to, you know, be way too stoned where it's not creating connection and presence with your children and enabling you to feel more creative um but it is maybe making you uh you know too sleepy and unsafe behind the wheel or checking out or you know eating too many cheetos or whatever right so it's not it's not that this is like the answer for everybody um but it is it is really it is really important to me that we reclaim some agency in our relationship with consciousness and with non-ordinary states of consciousness, right? That that should not be uh, legislated, in my opinion, yeah. any more than um, our bodies should be legislated, right? Like w- we, we, we deserve to have a certain amount of agency and autonomy in determining what is beneficial for our own lives, as long as that is not... Um, harming other people. Right. And then that's where it gets into the the question that's really dicey is like a lot of people, particularly people of color, women of color, you know, I'm sitting in white privilege, being able to talk openly about using cannabis and psilocybin and not having CPS called to my door, child protective services come to my door to take my children away. Yeah. Right. That's not the case for everybody. So yeah. I do recognize the amount of privilege that I have. a couple different intersections as you know a white bodied you know seemingly cis heteronormative like woman um to be able to talk about this and and i think that's also you know where i live in the state that i live in there are many areas that are decriminalized um there's a lot of advocacy for decriminalization which is advancing nationally but yeah, it's still this gray area, um, and for some people, it's not. Probably, if you live in certain states or certain territories, and I don't know how it is in Australia, but there's probably places where like it's straight up unsafe to publicly acknowledge that you use cannabis or psilocybin, like you're you're asked to go to jail. You know what I mean? So yeah,
0: yeah. So it's important
1: for us to acknowledge that too. And. Yeah,
0: and I'm grateful that you did because it did occur to me. Um, you know, even just possessing certain substances would be an immediate. You know, in Australia, our Indigenous population is um, incarcerated at far higher rates than their proportion of population, and that is part of the um, the trauma of colonialism, and it's 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 a it's a you know devastating problem, and it isn't safe um, for certain people to participate in the way we are. So I am I'm, I'm really grateful for you voicing that as, you know, white privileged middle-class women who have this freedom to follow out, not only our, you know, desires, but our faith. And we're also funded, you know, self-funded, but in a way that we mm-hmm. can explore these things and probably get whatever legal protection we might need should something potentially go wrong. So yeah, I I'm with you on that, that there's a lot of freedom, but I, I'm sure that you share that view that as you know privileged people through that freedom that we must not squander that privilege and that Mm -hmm. having these seemingly somewhat risky or outside of the box conversations is part of what we can do to help break down stigma and Mm -hmm. I really love your articulate articulateness articulation around this topic because you are really so well informed far, far more than me. And that it isn't an area of expertise for me at all. And I know you say you're not an expert and I honor that, but you do have a lot of um, context, historical, cultural, societal, political understanding. And I think probably where I am in Melbourne in Australia is like where you are in in the US, it's a lot more progressive and free thinking and liberal. um, And there are parts of Australia where it, it isn't like that at all. I, I really has so much I want to sort of unpack but i'd love to just start you'll just ask some really practical things. um, Mm -hmm. That you you don't have to answer and, of course, we're in a different country, the audience that listens will be global so it'll be different everywhere, but. Mm -hmm. You know what if I wake up one day and i'm like you know what I do want to start exploring this intentionally with full consciousness, how do I go about even just procuring magic mushrooms or cannabis i know you mentioned that you use gummies you know all of this stuff for some people that's like saying you know how how do i find any illicit substance you know like it would be there's just that sense of it's so far out of context so reveal only as much as you want but i guess just those steps are really interesting to mm-hmm. people who may be completely outside of this
1: yeah, so I'll do my best to answer that. I live in a state that is decriminalized for uh, cannabis statewide, and the United States is also advancing federal legislation to decriminalize cannabis or marijuana nationally. So um, decriminalization here in California means that um, you know we can, use, we can go to a dispensary, we can purchase uh, cannabis for recreational use, and it's really relatively low risk today. However, I would say the first thing to do is check the legality where you live. Find out is this um, absolutely illegal? Is it medically legal? Is it, um, you know, is it decriminalized? Is it recreationally legal? Figure out what the market is, basically, because that's going to give you a good place to start. If, um, you know, if it's fully illegal and there's no access, no medical, no nothing, then um, I think, you know, disclaiming all liability here, like, see if you can find um, advocacy groups that are working to change the status of legalization or, or criminalization in your area and, and volunteer, right? See if you can get involved in doing so. You'll also relationship build uh, with people who are informed and intelligent about you know the legal status and also probably have access, right? Um, cultivation or establishing your own relationship with these medicines is also a great idea. Cultivation for psilocybin or mushrooms is a little bit more um, challenging. Cultivation for cannabis, like I said, I mean, it's a plant. You put the seed in the ground, you water it, sunshine, it grows. So if you have a safe environment where you're able to do that and have relatively low risk to your person, um, to, you know, to your livelihood, to your career, et cetera, I, I say that not from a strategic, let's usurp the law, but more from like a, how to be an in integrity with the medicine itself is, yeah, you know, build a relationship with it, grow it, talk to it, tend it and, um, and go that direction. You know, if it's uh, say decriminalized or you have medical access either to psychedelics or to um, cannabis, find a healthcare provider who is, open-minded and willing to talk to you about it or anybody else that's in the same geographical area as you, um, who's openly talking about it and say, Hey, how did, how did you get here? Right. Mm -hmm. In, um, in the United States, there's a lot of organizations that for many years were working on medical advocacy and then we're working on recreational advocacy and now, um, you know, are working on ending, ending the stigma and like getting involved with those organizations is a good way to find out. You know, here it's like I said, it's really easy. You can walk into a store, you can buy it. And you can go into most people's yard and grow it. My, you know, mom and stepdad have you know ten plants in their backyard and their garages. Oh, she's probably she's never going to listen to this. <laughs> um, I don't, you don't know her name, but you know, it's not it's not that hard to come by here. Yeah. Um, And then I would say too, like, you know, if you really feel that this is a potential pathway for you. Um, it's not a crime to ask questions, right? Now it is a crime to ask to purchase a scheduled or controlled substance. Uh, soliciting, you know, the the sale is probably illegal in some areas, but to ask questions is still. I'm keeping my fingers crossed <laughs> hope it stays that way. In most places, you can still you can still ask questions, right? So, um, even if that's coming from a journalistic, like I think about Michael Pollan who's, you know, a uh, United States-based author. He wrote How to Change Your Mind. He wrote This Is Your Mind on Plans. Um, he's a journalist who was like, Ned never really engaged with psychedelics, was not into it, had, had uh, rejected the idea of writing about psychedelics more than once. And then in his late 50s or early 60s, um, I think it was his late 50s, decided, there was like a lot of buzz around the psychedelics. And he decided to to do write a book about it almost like as a skeptic like to try to kind of disprove all yeah. the hype around psychedelics and basically became a convert right so um you can ask questions as though you are a journalist who is looking to just write an article you know what i mean you're doing a school project <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and yeah. get information that way um I that. but i think i think yeah volunteer organizations advocacy organizations figuring out the legal status where you are um and then making making friends with people who um, who you like, who you know might know more than you, yeah. and then asking.
0: Yeah, education is power, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. the thing. And and it's so mainstream. You can go to Netflix and watch Fantastic Fungi, which is how mm-hmm. we pronounce that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you can, that the access to information is there and it's a little bit the same as, you know, we still teach Newtonian science to our children when we all know we live in a quantum reality. It's like, take the time to get curious educate yourself ask questions as you said and and break down the stigma because there's a very good chance that we're shutting ourselves down from the opportunity to expand consciousness in a accelerated safe and intentional way uh, Mm -hmm. so far beyond what else is possible and to end the cycles of abuse of other substances that are potentially legal or are legal but are Causing us massive harm, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm so grateful for all that you've shared. It's huge. We've we've it's such a long um episode. I said it would go for about 40 minutes, and I'm sure we're way over that. But I didn't want to miss a moment of this because your very personal experience, but also your vast knowledge, is is so helpful. And, and yeah, your willingness just to talk it all out with me, I really appreciate. I want to mm-hmm. ask you a few questions that are more personal, just to end, so we mm-hmm. can get to know mm-hmm. you a little bit. What do people misunderstand about you? Hmm.
1: I think as I very publicly have grown through different seasons and stages of my spirituality that some people have misunderstood my... um, public sharing of my belief systems as believing that there's one right way. Um, I don't believe there's one right way. Mm -hmm. And I believe that giving ourselves permission to to, um, shed, to, to stay on this wheel of life, right? This cyclical um, reality that really all living creatures are on, means giving ourselves permission to frequently die, right? Let jobs die, let belief systems die. Let And I think about specifically like going from really publicly being like, hey, intersection of Christianity and yoga philosophy, right? Back in 2017, I was really super excited about that and wanting to build bridges in that area. Um, and then had this kind of sacred feminine awakening on, on, and it wasn't, you guys, it wasn't, I was literally on the dirt under a tree and put my hands on the earth and had around a a campfire with a bunch of women and something woke up in me on my 33rd birthday, right? My Christ year, something woke up and it was like, whoa, whoa, I have forgotten you. I have forgotten the mother. And so then I started publicly sharing about that. And, and, you know, had previously said Kundalini yoga is dangerous. You know, people shouldn't do Kundalini yoga because that's what somebody told me. And, (laughs) and then I started studying Kundalini yoga. And so it was like, I said, I would never wear a turban. And then I had a turban on my head. Right. And so I've just grown in front of people. And I think that, um, at many different stages, like there's been folks who have, you know, felt like, oh, she stands for this. And she like, you know, believes in this and, and yes. And, just, you know, like a snake, there comes a point where I'm outgrowing that particular snake skin and I have to shed it or I'll die, right? Like, and, and shedding it is form, a form of death, and but it's a necessary death that serves um, birthing the new version of myself. And one of the things that I think I'm now committed to for the rest of my life is dying gracefully. Um yeah. And willingly so that I can be reborn. So I think one of the misunderstandings is, is that if I talk about a certain belief system, that that means that that's what I'm adhering to here, here to, you know, for forevermore, it's like, it's only this, um, and I'm not that parochial, right. It's like, I, I feel like there's like spokes of a wheel that go out in many different directions or like all roads lead to the mountaintop, or really, I don't even think, you know, I think when we get into some of these non-ordinary states of consciousness, where we have a different form of awareness, we're just like, oh, really that's all it is like the all of this seeking and searching and it's just so simple it's almost laughable right um that really it's all it is all one um and that seems like a gross oversimplification but ultimately there is an underlying web of reality that is yeah I don't know as far as I can tell one yeah um yeah I lots hate of you. different expressions
0: yeah what are you reading right now
1: I am currently reading *The Chalice and the Blade* by Ryan Eisler, which is a classic piece of uh, literature that is about the uh, rise of patriarchy and the fall of um, the fall of the Great Mother, the fall of the goddess as being the primary deity uh, in most. Um, in most societies, it's a fascinating read. It is a little bit academic if you're if you're not averse to that, and you're at all curious about how we got here. Um, and by the way, I want to actually take out the term "feminine" from that and say it's an interesting exploration of how we went from partnership societies to dominator societies, right? So, how did we go from living and working with each other in harmony and in community for evidence says 25,000 years to 5,000 years of the rise of this domination and subjugation that we see that is like affecting everything on the planet right now. Like if we look at the wound of power over as being the primary problem or whether we call that, you know, um, predatory capitalism or white body supremacy or patriarchy or like any of these systems of oppression where it's like one having power over another kind of what's the core of that? is the central question of this book, The Chalice and the Blade. It's a really, really great read.
0: Yeah, amazing. I will definitely look at that one. If today was your last day on earth, what is the message that you want us all to know from Amelia?
1: You're not doing it wrong. Mm. You're doing a great job being human. This is actually it. (laughs) You're doing it right now. <laughs> um I think I would give this message that so much of yeah what we think we're seeking or aspiring to um at the end of the day and at the end of life is you know the, really it, again it's very trite but like the core of this human experience is to create and to to love um and to And to connect, to know something greater than the self and your relationship with that. So if you're doing that, if you're creating literally anything that you are with the words that you speak and the thoughts that you have and all of that, um, if you're connecting with literally anyone, um, you're doing it right. There is no wrong way. I mean, we spend so much time worrying that we're doing it wrong and looking for the path the answers you know yeah I would just laugh (laughs) actually (laughs) and give gratitude for this time in human form because man it sure is a trip
0: yeah 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 thank you thank you thank you for sharing so deeply and offering us I know it's like the witching hour at your house 6 30 we mm. started you in the evening so i'm so grateful for you stepping mm. out of routine and coming into this container with me and yeah so nourished by your words and your presence and um yeah really really grateful for you just as mm. well. thank you
1: thank you the feeling is very mutual
0: In 2022, the Institute for Intuitive Intelligence is bringing you a whole new way to get qualified as a professional intuitive. The intuitive intelligence method accreditation is a 100 hour training program, including personal development, professional development and spiritual development that will take your skills as an intuitive to the level of superconscious. This program is available online and in person across a range of different dates and deliveries in 2022 and 2023. We'd love for you to head to the Institute for Intuitive Intelligence dot com to find out more about how you can get qualified faster and more efficiently to increase your power to serve.